This is Bonnie. This is Clyde. They're young. They're in love. They kill people. So began the trailer to the 1967 film starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, Bonnie and Clyde. Sometimes the press portrayed them as two crazy kids, two sweethearts on the run for love. Other times, the public thought of them as machine gun wielding bank robbers or cold blooded murderers. Were they criminal masterminds or just some down on their luck rednecks? For three years, they terrorized and, and some would say entertained the country with their brazen antics. From Texas to Minnesota, Oklahoma to Mississippi, they led lawmen on a merry chase that finally ended in the early morning hours near a small hamlet in Louisiana. So relax with that quintessential New Orleans cocktail, the Sazerac, and try to separate fact from fiction and piece together the true story of Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie Parker was born in 1910 in Rowena, Texas, to Emma Krauss, a seamstress, and Robert Parker, a bricklayer. Robert died when Bonnie was one year old, and Emma then moved the family back to her parents' home in West Dallas. In school, Bonnie was interested in writing poetry but her education ended when she was a high school sophomore. Six days before her 16th birthday, she dropped out of school and married Roy Thornton. But the marriage didn't work out. Roy was frequently gone and constantly in trouble with the law. They never divorced, but didn't see each other after 1929. Roy was eventually sentenced to five years in Huntsville State Prison for robbery. And in 1937, he was killed while trying to escape from jail. After separating from Roy, Bonnie returned to her mother's house and got a job as a waitress in a local diner. She was lonely. And in a diary in 1929, she wrote about wanting some excitement and how she dreamed of a career as a photographer or a writer. Little did she know, she'd soon have all the excitement she could handle. And she'd even try her hand at photography, and her pictures were published in newspapers around the country. Clyde Chestnut Barrow was born in 1909 in Ellis County, Texas, southwest of Dallas. He was the fifth son of Henry Burrow and Kumi Tabitha Walker. Farming in East Texas was a difficult proposition, and in the early 1920s, the Barrows moved to West Dallas, living under their wagon until they accumulated enough money to buy a tent. Clyde was interested in music and taught himself to play several instruments, including the guitar and the saxophone. He had some legitimate jobs in the 1920s, but supplemented his income with safe cracking, robbery, and auto theft. In 1930, a mutual friend, Clarence Clay, introduced him to Bonnie Parker. Bonnie had lost her job and was nursing a friend who had a broken arm. Clay and Clyde Barrow stopped by, and Bonnie made them hot chocolate. It was, people said, love at first sight. For two weeks, the two of them were inseparable. Bonnie's mother didn't like Clyde and urged her daughter to stop seeing him. Bonnie didn't listen. 
But the Texas criminal justice system was able to accomplish what Emma Parker couldn't. Clyde was arrested in 1930 and sentenced to five years in prison for auto theft. He was sent to Esham Prison Farm in April of that year. Bonnie visited him regularly, and shortly after his incarceration began, she smuggled in a gun and passed it to him in the visiting room. A few days later, using that weapon, Clyde escaped, but was quickly recaptured. He didn't have an easy time in jail. He was repeatedly raped and for the rest of his life blamed the guards and the Texas criminal system for allowing it to happen. He finally took matters into his own hands and beat his rapist to death with a lead pipe. Another inmate, already serving a life sentence, felt sorry for the 21-year-old Clyde and took the rap for the murder. Clyde was never one for physical labor, and a prison farm, after all, is all about physical labor. In 1932, Clyde arranged with another prisoner to have an accident where two of his toes were chopped off, making it impossible for him to do outside labor. He didn't realize, however, that his mother had hired a lawyer and had been petitioning for his parole. Six days after his accident, he was released. He went into prison a carefree, music-loving youth. He came out a hardened criminal. His sister Marie said, something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. A fellow inmate and a member of his first gang named Ralph Fultz said that he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy into a rattlesnake. After being released in February of 1932, Clyde quickly reunited with Bonnie and along with Ralph Fultz began a series of robberies of small grocery stores and gas stations. Clyde indicated that he wasn't really doing it to get rich. He just wanted to get enough money to wreak havoc on the Texas criminal justice system as revenge for what he had gone through at Easton. His goal was to buy enough firepower to raid Easton prison and break out the other inmates. On April 19th, of 1932, Bonnie and Ralph Fultz were captured as they attempted to steal guns from a hardware store in Kaufman, Texas. While Bonnie sat in jail, she wrote poetry. A grand jury failed to indict her, and she was released after a few months. Ralph Fultz was convicted and sentenced to prison. He was done with the barrel gang. While Bonnie sat in jail, Clyde hooked up with another drank gang and drove a getaway car for a robbery in Hillsboro, Texas. J.N. Butcher, the store's owner, was shot and killed. His wife fingered Clyde as one of the gunmen. The murder spree continued. On August 5th, Clyde and two other gang members were drinking moonshine at a county dance in Stringwell, Oklahoma. A sheriff and a deputy approached them as they loitered in the parking lot. One thing led to another, and they opened fire. The deputy was killed, and the sheriff was critically wounded. Two months later, they killed a store owner in Sherman, Texas, during a robbery. On Christmas Eve, W.D. Jones, one of childhood friends, joined Bonnie and Clyde in Dallas. The next day, they stole a car from a young family in Temple, Texas, and murdered the young family man. On January 6th, the three of them wandered into a trap that the police had set for another gang. In the ensuing shootout, another deputy was killed. The death toll for the first nine months of the Barrow Gang was five. 
the heat was on in Texas. So Bonnie and Clyde and W.D. Jones rented a house in Joplin, Missouri. It had an apartment above a garage, and that became their hideout. In March of 1933, Clyde's brother Buck was pardoned and released from prison in Texas. He and his wife, Blanche, traveled to Joplin. They said that they originally went there to convince Clyde to give up, return to Texas, and accept his medicine. It didn't work out that way. It was party time in Joplin. Blanche said that they bought a case of beer every day. They played loud music. Clyde on his guitar and his saxophone, they played cards late into the night. Sometimes, as the beer flowed freely, Clyde would fire his weapon. Neighbors eventually called the police. The police didn't know who was living in the apartment in Joplin. They just knew that it had to be some sort of criminal activity. They figured it may have been moonshiners or bootleggers. So they assembled a five-man task force, and one night they approached the, par- the apartment, and the gang opened fire, killing two of the officers. The three men drove away with Bonnie. Blanche was out walking her dog, Snowball, and they drove by at full speed, grabbed her and the dog, drugged them in the back seat, and took off. The officers returned fire wounding Jones and Buckbarrow, but not seriously. Afterwards, the cops searched the apartment. They found Buckbarrow's parole paperwork. They found a large arsenal of weapons. They found a poem written by Bonnie. And they found a roll of undeveloped film. The film contained posed photographs of the gang, including one that was printed in newspapers all around the country. It was Bonnie. She had a cigar clenched between her teeth and holding a pistol in her right hand, her leg resting on the bumper of the car. In a 2013 book, about Bonnie and Clyde, the author said, John Dillinger had matinee idol good looks, and Pretty Boy Floyd had the best possible nickname. But the Joplin photos introduced new criminal superstars with the most titillating trademark of all, illicit sex. Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were wild and young. Over the next three months, the gangs ranged as far as as far north as Indiana and Minnesota. Contrary to the public impression of them as daring bank robbers, they usually hit mom and pop grocery stores or gas stations, sometimes getting less than $10. Oftentimes, they would kidnap a hostage and drop them off, sometimes far from home. One time, Clyde even gave a hostage enough money to get a taxi and go home. But if anyone got in their way, they had no hesitancy to kill. As the news of their violence spread, they were no longer America's darlings. And as well, the Joplin photographs made them very recognizable. They couldn't even stay in hotels anymore having to camp out and bathe in streams and cold rivers. On June 10th, 1933, near Wellington, Texas, in the Panhandle, Clyde was driving and and ran through a construction sign. A bridge had washed out, and Clyde drove off the bridge into a ravine, flipping the car. Some stories say the car caught fire, but others say the battery exploded. Regardless, Bonnie was severely injured from burns, either from the gasoline fire or the battery acid. Her leg was severely injured, and the skin had pretty much burned off from her hip to her thigh. She was unable to walk. 
for very long distances and for the rest of her life, Clyde often had to carry her. The gang fled through Oklahoma and Arkansas and eventually turned north and ended up in Platte City, Missouri, north of Kansas City. They attracted attention and the police surrounded the tourist court in Platte City. A gunfight ensued. Buck Barrow was hit in the head, and Blanche was nearly blinded by shattered glass fragments. The gang shot their way out and managed to escape to Dexter, Iowa. Another police ambush awaited. Another gunfight. Buck was shot again, this time in the back, and he was killed, and Blanche was captured. Bonnie and Clyde and W.D. Jones escaped on foot with Clyde carrying Bonnie most of the way. They stole another car and eventually tried to return to Dallas. Jones parted company with them and was captured. Another police trap ended in a gunfight. This time, both Bonnie and Clyde were hit in the leg. Based on Jones' confession after his arrest, a grand jury in Dallas returned an indictment for the murder of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis. This was the first murder warrant issued for Bonnie and Clyde. On January 16, 1934, Clyde finally got his revenge on the Texas prison system. He led a raid on the Easton Prison Farm and broke out several prisoners. A guard was killed. The state of Texas had finally had enough. They put out a bounty on Bonnie and Clyde and eventually contacted the retired Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hammer and persuaded him to hunt down the Barrow Gang. Frank Hammer was a legend in the Texas Rangers. He personified the motto, one riot, one ranger. He went to work. He began to shadow the Barrow Gang, living out of his car and staying two or three towns behind them. He was tracking their movements, looking for a place to set an ambush. On April 1st, 1934, the gang killed two highway patrolmen near Grapevine, Texas. An eyewitness said that Bonnie and Clyde fired the fatal shots and that Bonnie was laughing as she pulled the trigger and the young highway patrolman's head bounced off the ground. It was his first day on the job. He had, was engaged to be married the following weekend, and his fiancée wore the wedding gown that she had intended to wear at the ceremony to his funeral instead. Hammer recruited a posse and decided that the best place to set up an ambush would be along Louisiana State Highway 145, south of Gibsland. At 9.15 a.m., on May 23rd, Clyde approached the intersection at high speed. A former gang member, Ivy Methvin, was recruited to flag Clyde down. Seeing him, Clyde pulled over. People have disputed exactly what happened, but the posse opened fire. They pumped over 130 rounds into the car. Bonnie and Clyde were killed instantly. After the initial fuselage, reporters said that Hammer fired several rounds into Bonnie's and Clyde's heads. The autopsy revealed that Clyde had 17 bullet wounds and Bonnie had 26. The undertaker said that there were so many holes in their bodies, he didn't know if they would be able to hold all the embalming fluid. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to be married next to each other, but Bonnie's family wouldn't have it. More than 20,000 people attended Bonnie's funeral in Dallas. There were cards from John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd. Clyde was given a private service 
and buried next to his brother. An ironic conclusion to this story. At one point, after a robbery, Bonnie and Clyde had kidnapped a man named H.D. Darby. Darby, it turned out, was an undertaker. While he was being held, Bonnie asked him what he did. He told her, and she laughed and said, well, maybe someday you'll be working on me. H.D. Darby did, in fact, assist with the embalming. Thank you, Dad. Bonnie and Clyde, I've never seen the 1967 movie, but I'm definitely going to have to watch it now. I did watch Netflix's The Highway, The Highwaymen, which was about the Texas Rangers who did the shootout. Uh, but anyway, this story is pretty fun and also very sad, but uh, we will talk more about it. But first, uh, we do have a very special guest today. and. She will introduce herself later, but we have Riley Wetzel here, and she is a brewer at Alma Mater Brewing in Kansas City, Missouri. And we know Riley through her husband and uh, her husband, Paul, and his family and our family are longtime close friends. So welcome, Riley. Thank you for being here. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, before we um, get into talking about uh, the cocktail and, and beer since Riley's here, I'm going to go over some fashion. So in all the way back in episode one of cocktails of crime and fashion, season one, episode one, I did a pretty in-depth guide on 1930s fashion. So I'm not going to do that again because I already did. Um, (laughs) but I, I did want to talk about the, style in the movie, the 1967 movie. The movie was called Bonnie and Clyde, correct? That was the name of it. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, it was nominated uh, for an Oscar for best costume design. And the costume designer was Theodora Van Runkel. So I thought we need to talk about these costumes because they are quite fabulous. The costumes have gone down as some of the most memorable in history. And an article I found called 50 Years Later, Bonnie and Clyde Are Still Style Icons by Jennifer Ferris uh, for InStyle. She broke their styles into one, two, three, four, five, six categories. Um, And unfortunately, I can't show photos on a podcast. uh, So... This will be interesting, but category one is their street style. So Clyde can be seen in tailored double-breasted pinstripe suits and Bonnie in her ribbed knit sweater, tweed pencil skirt, silk scarf, and wool beret. She also had a really cute like blonde bob. Um, Effortless elegance is the second one. So Bonnie had this look with a nude silk cami layered with gold necklaces and paired with a straw fedora. Really cute. Third one was called In the Trenches. Uh, Bonnie wore a belted... So this is them in their trench coats. That's right. Bonnie had a belted windowpane trench paired with a black beret and Clyde had a three-piece wool suit with a fedora. Easy Rider. The photo was... Bonnie leaning against the car. So this was a neutral look. It had a cream blouse with a black blazer, black skirt, and black beret. Next, we have It Takes Two. I don't remember what this photo was, uh, but Bonnie was wearing a tan high-waisted pencil skirt and Clyde in a white button-down under a vest. Very 30s. And lastly, we have Fresh Prince. Oh, I get it. It's like Fresh Prince. That's cute. I did not get that when I was typing it. (laughs) Fresh prints. And this was uh, Bonnie wearing a breezy long-sleeved dress and a graphic print. Uh, It looked, the. it was interesting. These photos, like it was 30s style, but 
I definitely could tell it was 1967. Like it was a good mixture of the two style decades. Have you guys seen any, seen the movie or seen any photos from the movie? Of what I everyone's wearing? The movie. Yeah, I, I saw, I have saw you- the movie years ago and uh, I watched a clip just this morning. That's where I got that opening line. Um, yeah, that that that's a pretty good description of what it looked like in the movie. I, I don't think that's what they look like in real life. Uh, right. You know, uh, the, I was going to say that sounds super fashionable yes. for two Texas, two Texas bad guys. Yeah. Like yeah. bathing in the river. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me put my tweed like dress yeah. back on. And <laughs> yes. Let me hang up my tweed uh, wool coat, please. <laughs> yes, I I gather that the movie very much romanticized Bonnie and Clyde. Uh in The Highwaymen though, like in a lot of ways. In The Highwaymen, Bonnie and Clyde looked more not as they didn't look as fashionable at all. So, they weren't shown that much in the movie, uh but when they were, it was pretty it was very 1930s fashion. It wasn't like cute like this stuff was yeah i mean it was fine but i'm sure i'm (laughs) sure you'll post some uh pictures on the website and on facebook yeah the pictures i've seen bonnie was usually in a dark colored suit with a with a little 30 style hat i never saw a picture of her in a beret uh and uh never saw never saw clyde in a three-piece suit um again a fedora he did he he did wear a fedora and you know i'm Mm -hmm. all about fedoras so (laughs) they are your favorite yes well that's all i have for trends of the crime today and i forgot to mention that was our trends of the crime section where we talk about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime or in this case at the time of the film instead of the crime (laughs) (laughs) if you want to hear more about 1930s fashion then go back and listen to uh the Lindbergh baby episode we did our very first show on so um, all right, next, let's discuss the cocktail. Dad, tell us what you decided to make this week, what it is, and why you chose it. I chose to make a Sazerac. Sazerac is that quintessential New Orleans cocktail, and I chose that because uh, that's where Bonnie and Clyde met their bloody end in Louisiana. Um, Sazerac has been around forever. Um Started out as a more of a French cocktail with cognac, but uh, as it became Americanized in the old latter half of the 19th century, um, bartenders began to use rye whiskey and and absinthe. So um, one of my favorite cocktails, and uh, we'll be making that. Great. Can't wait to try it. I don't know if I've had one before. Have you ever had one, Riley? I have. It's, it's probably been a couple of years, but... Yeah, it's good. Good. I'm excited to try it or try it again if I've had it. (laughs) Well, like I mentioned earlier, Riley is here with us today. And I wanted to give her a chance to introduce herself and talk about her background with beer. And I'm really excited to learn what a a beer brewer does. So take it away, Riley. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. Um, Yeah. So I have a degree in microbiology from... University of Kansas. And uh, I started out working as a, as a research assistant at KU Med for a couple of years and decided that's just not the life I wanted to live. I wanted to do something more creative. So I, um, I, my first job in brewing was at Boulevard Brewing Company um, as a microbiologist. Um, I was there for three years. And then my husband and I decided to move to uh, California for his job. So I worked at um, uh, a brewery in in, in uh, Southern California called The Brewery. Uh, it's spelled B-R-U-E-R-Y. <laughs> it's always always a little confusing. Um, but yeah, they make uh, they make like really high ABV barrel aged um, imperial stouts. It's kind of their specialty, along with a whole plethora of ales and lagers. So really, my job at the brewery was to was the senior quality manager. So I made sure that while we were being super innovative at the brewery, we were also reaching quality standards so we could get get beer out the door and have people coming back. My husband and I moved back to Kansas City about six months ago. We're super happy to be home, but now I'm a brewer at Alma Mater Brewing Company 
in Kansas City, Missouri. It's right down the street from uh, right down the street from Boulevard, actually. And we focus on we focus on um, IPAs that are new, innovative, but fresh, approachable, um, as well as some really, really crispy, amazing lagers. So yeah, I'm a brewer there now, and it's kind of a different side from from quality control where um, I'm actually in production. I'm brewing the beer. I'm in the cellar, um, making sure fermentation temperatures are where they need to be, sampling the beer, moving the beer around um, from fermenter to bright tank into packaging. And there's a small team there. Like there's only four of us. Um, So I also do tasting room stuff, sell beer, talk to customers, it's a really fun group and I'm really happy to be there. So yeah. Awesome. That sounds yeah. fun. I, I don't know that I've ever had an Alma Mater beer. Have you, Dad? I don't think so, but you did mention a tasting room. You have a tasting room? Okay. Yeah. So we just celebrated our second anniversary. And since COVID started, it's been just beers, like four packs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think later, later in month or early June, we should be opening the tasting room back Great. up for sure. So Great. yeah, Great. yeah, we'll definitely uh-huh. have to bring uh-huh. you some. Oh yeah. Well, we'll take absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Or we'll come visit. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what, uh, what are some of the uh, approachable IPAs that you, that you uh, brew? You mentioned. Uh, yeah. So, so we make kind of like a whole, a whole bunch of different IPAs. So there's, there's, I'm sure you guys know about the haze craze, mm-hmm. hazy IPAs mm-hmm. that, um, and sometimes, um, sometimes they're just like extremely hopped and, um, a little bit, a little bit hard to get your, get your mind wrapped uh-huh. around. Um, and like we do make, we make hazy IPAs, but we're, we like to focus on a couple of different hops that really focus on a certain flavor or a certain hop characteristic, whether that being, you know, more citrusy and creamy mm-hmm. and, and sort of balanced on, on like in your mouth. And being sweet, like maybe a little bit sweeter too, or um, we can make like we make like a dry hopped, like a lightly dry hopped pale ale. So if you're not crazy about the more um, in your face IPAs, a nice like nice soft pale ale um, is a little bit more approachable. Um, we also have dry hopped dry hopped um, pilsner. Um, which, which, you know, is a really great beer too. Um, and then we also make, also make Pilsners that have like that really nice fluffy head and, um, have a full body, only slightly bitter, but really clean and fresh. So yeah, it's, it's really enjoyable to work there. And I'm learning a ton from Nick and Michael, uh, that work there and how they work their magic and (laughs) <laughs> well, we're looking, yeah. we're looking forward to that. Uh, could, could you explain a little bit about, uh, IBU that's, it stands sure. for international bitterness units or is, is that yeah, right? It yeah. Does. Could, could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, so IBU or bitterness, uh, international bitterness units or bitterness units come from, um, hops and the waxy, what's called lepulin, um, glands that come from hops. So all hops have, um, what's called alpha and beta acids. And those acids get added to a hop boil and they're isomerized, which makes them bitter and soluble in the, in the brew kettle and the amount of hops, the style of hops and the, the amount of time that they're introduced to the boil in the brewing process is how is how bitter the beer is going mm. to get. So bitterness units itself is a measurement of how 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 many alpha acids have isomerized in the boil. Mm. All beer gets all beer gets hops in the boil. Um, that helps it stay um, antimicrobial. Um, it also creates that nice bitterness balance that we expect from mm. all beer. So yeah. yeah. So even if so. a beer isn't super bitter, it's going to have some some hops. In sure. It. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. What's your favorite beer you've ever had? Oh, my favorite. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, a tough one, I bet. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm usually, I really like Saison's. Uh, that's probably like historically my favorite beer, I guess. And, and that's mostly because of the yeast. 
So I, I got into brewing because I, because I'm a microbiologist and yeast is so fascinating in that you can add sugar water and, and yeast, which is basically what, what brewing is. It's making sugar water. It's making malted, malted barley and like hot water. So yeast given the right temperature and the right atmosphere will, will produce carbon dioxide and alcohol, but it will also produce all of these esters and phenolic compounds and other aromatic compounds that make beer so interesting. Depending on the type of yeast it is, it'll get off, give off these fruity or spicy or floral compounds that just kind of make you like step back and, and, uh, kind of enjoy one brew to the next, depending on what type of yeast you use. And I just think that that's so cool that this one little microorganism can make such a big difference. Um, or it can make like, it can make your beer a little bit funky or like, I don't know. I think, that I think that's cool. probably why it's my favorite beer. Well, yeah. we're, we're in agreement there. I love a, I love a Saison too. Oh yeah. yeah. Me three. Um, yes. What um, <laughs> there, there is, oh, well, to go back to Boulevard for a minute, they sometimes produce a Saison Brett using mm-hmm. Brett. Is it Brettomyces? Is that how it's pronounced? Brettomyces. 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 Sorry. Talk about that for a minute, because that that's probably my favorite, my favorite beer right there. So with Saison Brett, what they do is they have a primary fermentation and that creates that creates the beer. And then right before they bottle it, what they're going to do is bottle condition it. So in the tank, they're going to add a little extra sugar, um, a le- extra champagne yeast, and they're going to add Britannomyces, which is the yeast that kind of makes it a little funky and gives it those extra flavors. The reason they bottle condition that beer is to is to um, clean up any oxygen that's in the bottle or in the beer and in the bottle and then create CO2. So they're going to, um, instead of forcing carbonation in a tank, they're going to use that extra yeast to produce CO2 to make the beer carbonated. And then they're also going to let that bottle sit for a couple of months. So Saison or so the Britannomyces can kind of make those weird, crazy, funky, fun flavors. And that's why that beer is so fun to hold on to for a while, because every year it gets a little... It gets a little tangier, it gets a little rounder and more mature and yummy. So, and that's also why every year it's a little bit different. It just is. And that's kind of one of the cool, cool things. I don't recommend doing that to every beer. Don't do that to every beer. <laughs> Good to know. Most of the time when beer is released, drink it that week because that's when it's going to be the best. Yeah. Um, a lot of beer nowadays has a long shelf life, but yeah, the beers like that or barrel aged beers are really nice to hold on to for a while. Cool, so, cool, yeah, cool, awesome, for sure. Do you have any well, more questions, Dad? Just one. What about? Um, I know there is a member of my family who who will remain nameless uh, who really <laughs> likes sours. What what uh, what yeah. makes a sour? Yeah. So, um, well, hopefully that was on purpose that it's sour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, so really it kind of just depends on what you're going for. There are different kinds of sour beers. I'm not going to name all of them, but in general, it's a secondary fermentation, just like we talked about Saison bread, but it's a secondary fermentation. Well, I guess I can't even say that beers, brewers are being so innovative nowadays that it kind of just depends, but typically there's a primary fermentation with brewing yeast and then it'll go into a tank where you add things like wild yeast, like Britannomyces. It could be lactobacillus. Um, it could be Pediococcus. And both of those, both of those are bacteria strains, and they have several different strains: um, Lactobacillus plantarum, Lactobacillus brevis. Those are two super popular bacteria that you can use in beer um, to make them a little sour. And they give off kind of cool sour notes, obviously, but they're kind of like cool floral, juicy notes also. And what they do is they eat all, or they ferment those sugars that the primary fermentation or that brewer's yeast couldn't ferment. 
So they like, they like those other, other sugars, the brewer's yeast can't ferment. So, um, they kind of, they kind of eat up everything that, that, that's still, that's still there. So you're typically going to get like a drier, a drier sour beer. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, fascinating again. Thank you so much for that. I'm, I, my knowledge has increased exponentially. Thank you. Oh yeah. Yes. Thank you. Or if you, or if you ever see like a spontaneous, um, a spontaneous beer, uh, those are, those are like ferment, uh, beers that have been left out, um, left out in the open and like the brewer will let anything spontaneous in the environment land in there, ferment, and then you kind of just try it and see if it worked or not. (laughs) Cool. So yeah, it's, you can pretty much do anything. Huh. I want to brew some beer. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have a, we'll have a cocktail crime and fashion party. Anyone who wants to brew beer. (laughs) Yeah. Riley teach us. <laughs> well, thank you, Riley. That was really that was really awesome. I I've read multiple books about wine, but nothing about beer, and I'll have to uh, keep learning. That's really super interesting. So yeah, thanks for having thank me you. on. I I love talking about beer. So good, of course. Yeah. Well, you're welcome anytime. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I do want to get into talking about the crime as well, and I found an article called. 10 Things You May Not Know About Bonnie and Clyde by Christopher Klein for history.com. And some of these things were talked about in dad's story. So I'm not going to go over every single one, at least the ones that I remember in the story. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, or, or if I found more detail about them, I'll mention them. So the first one, Bonnie died wearing a, re- a wedding ring, but it wasn't Clyde's. And we know that she was married to Roy Thornton and the marriage didn't work out. Uh, I did find, however, a journal entry by Bonnie. And we also know that Bonnie was a talented writer. And I thought that this was pretty interesting. So it says, oh, it's pretty small type. Dear diary, before opening this year's diary, I wish to tell you that I have a roaming husband with a roaming mind. We are separated again for the third and last time. The first time, August 9 through 19, 1927, and the second time, October 1 through 19, 1927, and the third time, December 5, 1927. I love him very much and miss him terribly, but I intend doing my duty. I am not going to take him back. I am running around with Rosa Mary Judy, and she is somewhat a consolation to me. We have resolved this New Year's to take no men or nothing seriously. Let all men go to hell. Yes, (laughs) but we are not not going to sit back and let the world sweep us by. And then it talks about her going out with uh, Rosemary Judy. Uh, She said, I wish the old year would have taken my past with it. I mean, all my memories, but I can't forget Roy. I'm very blue tonight. So it talks about how she's going out because she's very blue. This was before she met Clyde, clearly. So. She was very sad about the marriage not working out. She even had a tattoo on the inside of her right thigh with two interconnected hearts labeled Bonnie and Roy. So, and she oh. was not even 16 when they got married. So, she's 15 years old, super young. And then Roy died in 1937 when he was trying to escape prison. So, somebody asked her why she never divorced him. She said, "Well, he was in prison and to file for divorce then would have been kind of dirty. <laughs> oh, what's so, that uh, mean? <laughs> well, it just wouldn't be proper to, you know. Oh, I see. I see. And besides, she was she had Clyde by then. So right. she was happy with Clyde. But yeah, she never divorced him. But I I I don't think that uh I don't think she was pining away for him after she met Clyde. Clyde was the love of her life. Not a very yep. long life, but uh, <laughs> right. know, for those for those two or three years. Yep. I I often wonder if uh, how long that romance would have lasted if they had lived. Very yeah. interesting. I was trying. I was kind of curious, or like trying to think during Mike's uh, during Mike's explanation, like what her like why you know why why she was doing this or like why did she get involved or why didn't she but it sounds like she wanted to party it's not 
Yeah. It sounds like she wanted to just like live her life and go. Cause I mean, it, it doesn't sound like they stole a bunch of money either. You know, they weren't like living it up. Right. No. I think it was for but, the thrill of it. Yeah. 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 I think they were basically stealing money to survive. Um, they were they were not hitting banks. They were hitting little grocery stores, and they might not even get ten bucks. In fact, when they checked into the um, a hotel, I think in uh, in Platte City, the tourist court in Platte City, Missouri, Blanche would have been Clyde's sister in law. Went in to pay, and uh, they paid. She paid with coins. Didn't have any paper money. And uh, it turns out that they would sometimes, if they couldn't find a bank or a gas station to knock off, they'd get in the old gumball and vending machine down on the sidewalk <laughs> and, and break into those. So they were, oh my gosh. they were, they were, they were, as you said, Riley, they weren't living high off the hog. They were just uh, getting from town to town, probably enough money to buy a sandwich and move on to the, to the next gas station. Yeah, where does that two-piece suit come in? Like, yeah. how do you right. how do you afford that? <laughs> the tweed skirts and yeah. the yeah. silk shirts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as we said, or as Dad said, and I just said, Bonnie wrote poetry. And while she was in prison in 1932, she wrote a collection of ten poems called "Poetry from Life's Other Side." The collection included the story of Suicide Sal, a poem about a country girl lured into a life of crime by her boyfriend. Hmm. Sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, two weeks before her death, Bonnie gave her mom a poem entitled Trails End. And this was the final verse. Someday they'll go down together and they'll bury them side by side. To a few, it'll be grief. To the law, a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. So she knew. What? <laughs> She's psychic. <laughs> she's like it's come close too many times yeah. yes. i should write this now <laughs> it's inevitable yeah i from what i could tell they they had been uh, in at least four high-speed shootouts with the police where they're going down the road and bonnie has a has a gun out the window shooting and the cops are shooting at them and uh so when she said uh, in Dallas that she was bored and and uh, wanted some excitement, she certainly got that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Certainly did. Dad, did you mention that Clyde was rejected by the Navy? No, I didn't. Uh-uh. Okay. Well, he was. Uh, he had lingering effects from a childhood illness that made him ineligible. But it's sad because he already had USN tattooed on his left arm. So he really wanted to be in the Navy and his life probably would have turned out differently had he been in the certainly. Navy. Yeah. Certainly was that before have. he went to jail or. Yeah. I think that's yeah. when he was uh, 17, 16 or 17, he got okay. the tattoo and uh, that's what he wanted to do. But um, I think he may have, I can't remember the illness that he had, but you know, I mean, they had a hard life. They were living outside for years once they left the farm. Just, uh, you know, and then, of course, the depression hit and the dust bowl. So this was not a, a nice time to be alive. You can you can see why he turned it to minor crime. I just, you know, wish he hadn't found the need to kill 13 or 14 people along the way. Right. Clyde's first arrest, uh, Riley, was in 1926. Um, so how old would he have been? Well, he was born in 1909, so what, 17, 16 or 17 probably. Oh, so this was right after he got the tattoo then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so his first arrest came from failing to return a rental car. Uh, he, he rented the car in Dallas to visit a high school girlfriend, and I guess he never returned it. <laughs> uh, the rental car agency dropped the charges but three weeks later, he and his older brother were arrested for stealing a truckload of turkeys. <laughs> so that's weird. It must have been Thanksgiving or Christmas. Must have. <laughs> Don't know why you'd need a truckload, but well, maybe, maybe they were gonna maybe they were gonna set up business out in the parking yeah, lot and opportunity. Yeah, right. <laughs> to each their own. Yes. Why is this? Why is this truck of turkeys sitting here? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, dad mentioned bank robberies were not their specialties, contrary to popular belief. And I do want to know in the movie, were they robbing banks or was it accurate 
that they were not really robbing banks. In the movie, they there was one scene in the movie where uh, they went into a bank and they both had their guns out. And Clyde said, I'm Clyde and this here's Bonnie and we rob banks. So, you know, <laughs> they, they were portrayed in the movie as, uh, you know, robbing banks and living it up and enjoying the money. So uh, it, the, okay. the movie really glamorized them quite a bit. I but, see. you know, it was Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. So they it had was to be nominated glamorized. for a lot of awards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had to be glamorized. I mean, you know, right. this, this wasn't Meryl Streep where she could, you know, put on a, some makeup and pretend to be a someone who, who bathed in streams. So, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dad did mention, I remember that Clyde, well, two of his toes were chopped off in prison, but we don't know if Clyde did it or if he asked someone to do it. Yeah. I, I just thought it was funny that, I mean, not funny, ironic that it ended up being unnecessary because he got out six days after he did that. And he did that to get out. But he didn't need to do it. Yeah, yeah, he did. He didn't. He didn't want to go out and work on the hard labor crew out on the farm. And he thought, well, if I chop off toes, they'll have to give me a cushy inside job. <laughs> but then six days later, Mama comes and says, "Honey, you're getting out of prison." So I'm, yeah. I'm sure he regretted that. But he walked with a he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And in fact, he uh, he couldn't for some reason. He couldn't wear shoes when he drove. He had to drive in his socks because I, 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 they said his feet couldn't, couldn't uh, work the pedals in shoes. I guess he couldn't feel where things were. So whenever he's driving that getaway car, he's, uh, he's wearing his socks. I was going to say, that makes it really hard to get away. Yeah. Hold on. Right. Let me take my shoes off. Yeah. Right. I, I think, you know, Clyde didn't, didn't seem like he, uh, like he had a lot going on upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Being a famous right. yeah. burglar. <laughs> yeah. Being played by Warren Beatty. Yes. <laughs> um, this, this next tidbit of information they did portray in The Highwaymen. And it's been a while since I've seen that, but I remember this part because I thought it was weird. Uh, and I Googled it after and it was true. So, Souvenir hunters tried to cut off parts of Bonnie and Clyde at the scene of their deaths. So in the movie, like immediately after the shootout, people just swarmed the car and were trying to get stuff. And um, and one man tried to cut off Clyde's ear with a pocket knife and another attempted to sever his trigger finger before the police intervened. Uh, But one person did manage to clip locks of Bonnie's hair and pieces of her blood-soaked dress. And this is while, like, the two people are slumped over dead. Wow. Like, they had just died. Yeah. Yeah, it's a a little bit different than today when, you know, the the yellow tape goes up and the crime scene is is isolated. I mean, they said that while they were embalming him, thousands of people showed up you know, taking pictures of the body and, and gawking at it. And, uh, you know, I guess is they find, they found his dad and asked him to come identify the body at the funeral home. And he said, his dad came and then just slumped over in a chair crying outside the funeral home. Mm-hmm. And people are, are taking pictures, but yeah, just, a you know, again, a, a different world. Um, mm-hmm. man. Yeah. That would never ever happen today. Yeah. Yep. Their bullet-riddled death car is now on display at a casino. How fun. Uh, after So this has kind of a local tie, too, this part. I mean, the story did, too. But uh, after the ambush, a federal judge decided that the car should be returned to its previous owner, Ruth Warren of Topeka, Kansas, which is just 40 minutes from me right now. Uh, Warren eventually sold the car to Charles Stanley, an anti-crime lecturer who toured the fairgrounds with the death car with the mothers of Bonnie and Clyde in tow as sideshow attractions. So that's (laughs) not a good look. 25 Um, cents. Come see the death car (laughs) and the mothers. (laughs) The morning mothers. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I was like, ah! 
the Death Car is now an attraction in the lobby of Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim, Nevada, 40 miles south of Vegas. Nice. So, so did they steal the car from Topeka? Or does... Yes, they did. I, yeah. yeah. Oh, I that's think cool. they I think they stole oh. it. I think they stole the car uh, after the shootout in um, in Platte City. And okay. then they stole okay. that car. And that's the one they were driving uh, at the ambush. Okay. So that's why they the judge said it should be returned because it was stolen. Yes. Now yes. I get it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they found uh, they found, of course, a lot of weapons in the car. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde they were packing, and uh, after after the after they were dead, Clyde's mother uh, wrote to Frank Hammer and to the prosecutors in Dallas and said, "You know, my son has never been convicted of anything, of any murders, and uh, I would like you to return his property to me, including all of the guns." And. Uh, <laughs> The, the the letter was never answered, so uh, she never got all the guns back. Evidently, yeah. evidently, part of Frank Hammer's deal was that he got to keep everything, that he could keep all the guns and all the property in the car. And uh, so he kept all the guns and, and sold them and made, made quite a bit of money uh, selling Clyde and, Clyde and Bonnie's guns. Yeah, um, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there, there were a lot of rewards offered. As I mentioned in in the scripted portion of the podcast, I think it was up to oh god over twenty six thousand dollars. And uh, wow! Strangely enough, after they were killed, uh, a lot of people who had offered the rewards uh, reneged on their promises to pay, and so the posse members who who engaged the ambush they they each got like twenty bucks. So uh, huh. even even the state of Texas and Governor Ma Ferguson uh, reneged on their promise to pay. So wow. they got so the guns were worth twenty six hundred dollars. Oh, I I don't I I would imagine they were. They were probably sold to museums and collectors. They're oh, probably yeah. still out there somewhere. Yeah, I was going to mm-hmm. say, what's that in today's money? Hmm. <laughs> Let me Google it. Let's see. <laughs> Money or wait, inflation calculator. We do like to do this. Talk about yeah. how much. Uh, all right. So twenty six hundred in nineteen thirty four. Fifty one thousand three hundred ninety four dollars and four cents. Nice. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of green. Okay. No, um. And Macy, you have on here that they were uh, they're buried separately, even though they they wanted to be yep. buried together. But uh, Bonnie's mother wouldn't have any of that, and mm-hmm. she's she's buried she's a in a bear. in a Dallas mm-hmm. cemetery. But she has Bonnie has one surviving uh, niece, and she is uh, petitioning whoever she has to petition to try to get Bonnie exhumed and buried next to Clyde. I think oh, that's sweet. Uh, so the story, yeah. the story continues. So maybe someday uh, they will rest together, as Aww. Bonnie mentioned in her poem. As they wanted. Yes. And I thought it was interesting, the epitaph that Clyde handpicked to go on his grave. Uh, he was buried next to his brother Marvin, and his handpicked epitaph was gone but not forgotten. And he sure was not forgotten. So that's nope. for sure. <laughs> yeah. He knew too. He knew everything. <laughs> I wanted to close uh talking about this case in pop culture. Uh as we know, there was the 1967 film starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, and then The Highwaymen, which was which was released in 2019. And that starred Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson in TV uh in March. 2009, Bonnie and Clyde were the subject of a program in the BBC series Time Watch. Anyone heard of it? I have not. No. Me neither. There was a 2016 episode of Time Less. I saw that. Never heard of it. Oh, oh I you saw did? that. Yes, I saw that one. How was it? Wasn't, not very good. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've never heard of the show, so I have heard of this show, but I've never seen it. There was a 2020 episode 
uh, I'm sorry, the year 2020 episode of the show Legends of Tomorrow. I've heard of that. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen it. I don't know what it's about, but heard of it. I did know this. There is a 2009 Broadway musical entitled Bonnie and Clyde. Never seen it, but I would like to. So, sounds fun. There's a novel called Side by Side, a novel of Bonnie and Clyde by Jenny L. Walsh. This was a fictionalized account of the crime spree told through Bonnie's perspective. You heard of this? I'd like to read that. I haven't Mm -hmm. read, I haven't heard of that, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, Podcasts, um, us, we don't have a (laughs) podcast about it, Uh, (laughs) but a more famous podcast. uh, The last podcast on the left did a three part series on Bonnie and Clyde, which would be really fun to listen to. And lastly, the slang that came from this crime. Uh, They're a modern day Bonnie and Clyde. That's a man and woman who operate together as present day criminals. Uh, Just saying Bonnie and Clyde is used to describe a couple that is extremely loyal and willing to do anything for each other, even in the face of danger. I thought that was a Macy and Jacob. Uh, we're not dangerous <laughs> we're a boring couple uh that's synonymous with ride or die i would say jacob's my ride or die but yeah we don't actually ride or die so <laughs> i feel like ride or die is like the new bonnie and clyde yeah yes yes <laughs> and lastly you have bonnie and clyde syndrome the pop culture phrase for hybristophilia which is the phenomena of becoming attracted to or aroused by the knowledge of or the watching of an outrageous crime taking place. (laughs) That's a lot of words. Nice. There we go. There we go. (laughs) Yes. So in conclusion, what is What are everyone's thoughts on Bonnie and Clyde? Were they just young lovers who, well, they killed some people, but they didn't mean to really do harm or were they mastermind criminals? Well, I don't think they were mastermind criminals. I mean, oh, you'd, right. get more than that. you'd get more than $8 a pop. No, I I think they were they were just, uh, you know, some small-time hoods who were trying to get by, just get enough money to to eat and move on to the next town. I mean, but, you know, again, as, as we always do, we've got to remember 13 people died here and and nine of them were law enforcement officers who were just trying to do their job so Mm -hmm. uh you know again it was uh if it was if it was just uh you know two people robbing stores and traveling around fine but uh they were murderers both of them Mm -hmm. when it sounds like i mean i didn't know clyde had such a traumatic past i mean honestly i didn't know that much about him but it sounds like he he went through a lot of trauma and he, and no one really protected him. And I think when he got out, he was just, he wanted to get back at, you know, the Texas, you know, like police force, I guess. But it sounded like he, yeah, he was like robbing and stuff, but it sounded like he kind of just wanted to act out because he was hurting a lot. Um, Yeah. I think, I think you're right, Riley. That's uh the, the state certainly didn't do him any favors by not protecting him um, in prison. And that yeah. probably still happens today. You wonder yeah. how many people come out um, so traumatized by what happened inside that they don't really have a chance. Yeah, mm-hmm. re- right. And they're not really like rehabilitated. And yeah. it's just, you know. They're thrown out into the world. And yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree with what you both said. And I think that they, they were. They were very, very young, and I think they didn't have a good grasp on the gravity of their actions. Uh, that's not an excuse. Um, but, yeah, definitely not mastermind criminals. Definitely just trying to get by. I guess they just didn't want a real job, so yeah. they decided to steal stuff instead. Uh, but, yeah. It I also hit me, too, like, they, they would kidnap people and then just give them taxi money to go home. Like yeah. it right. just seemed like, it just seemed like a thrill and then, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm bored. You can leave. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it just seemed like thrill seeking and, and like depressive and, you know, highs yeah. and lows constantly. Think, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Interesting. I can't, I want to learn more about them for sure. Me too. We'll have to read that. That book sounds good. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Riley. It was so fun having you on. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks. Yeah, and this was fun. If you ever want to have a beer brewing party, yeah. uh, please invite us. For and, sure. Uh, <laughs> and uh, just so everyone knows, what again, what's the uh, address of, uh, of Alma Mater Brewing? And, um, or when, Instagram or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. So Alma Mater Brewing, it's in Kansas City, Missouri, off of Southwest uh, Boulevard right down the street from Boulevard Brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us Instagram and Facebook uh, at Alma Mater Brewing. It's not Mater, it's Mater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I apologize for saying no, that. No, it's fine. <laughs> no, it's fine. Everybody asks. So um, yeah, stop by, come grab a four pack. We'd be happy to happy to meet everybody. So okay. all right. Well, thank well, you. Thank uh, you very much. Next week, it is finally the Pizza Bomber. I've been saying it. I've said it like four times and been wrong. I promise you, Pizza Bomber is next week. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.